You know those annoying personal questions you have to answer when you forget your password? They give you a menu of 20 different options. And I can't remember, I literally just encountered one of these two days ago. You know, your best friend's name from the third grade or... Yeah, my son's was, uh, name the place of your first kiss. That was a new one. What? You know what? I. <laughs> that's so funny that you say that because I, I think that was on my list. Yeah, a lot of them are pretty silly. Who needs to get that nostalgic when you just want to check your account balance? But they're a reminder of something more serious, the constant threat of fraud and identity theft. If you've been following the show, you know that the ways we spend and move our money are increasingly moving into the digital realm. FIS's Eric Krauss says that with that technological shift come new risks for consumers and new vulnerabilities for criminals to exploit. But it also brings new tools that we can use to protect ourselves, including identity safeguards that are more high-tech and definitely more convenient than those pesky questions. We've seen everything from, you know, voice biometrics, where you actually create a voice-driven password and, and you speak your name as you come in, um, to more predictive models where they're just picking up on inflections in the voice. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation, where we explore the trends that are already transforming financial institutions and the technologies we'll need to prosper in a brave new payment landscape. I'm your host, Erin Dangler, and today, fraud in the digital age. We'll talk about how fraudsters have adapted to new digital payment technologies and how they're exploiting the COVID pandemic. And we'll ask who is most at risk of falling victim to fraud these days. The answer may surprise you. How can financial institutions up their game in the fight against fraud? And who's winning this technological arms race? Eric Krauss, Vice President of Fraud, Risk and Compliance Solutions at FIS, will give us his take. What kinds of fraud should we be most concerned about these days when it comes to our money? You know, I think the, the one that's top of mind for me and the one that seems to be uh, most impactful for the average consumer would be identity theft. You know, this is, a, this is a big problem. It can be very onerous to try to clean up if, if you become a victim. Uh, a lot of hours spent trying to clean it up can have out-of-pocket costs that can often escalate depending on the severity of the situation. But, but this is a problem that research showed reached about $17 billion in, in 2019. And there's been such a proliferation of data breaches and database hacks over the last several years that there is just this wealth of personal information out on what we call the dark web. Think of things like social security numbers, account numbers, e even physical addresses, online credentials, passwords. All of this is available in, in great numbers on the dark web. And once criminals have this type of information, they can employ tactics such as account takeover, literally getting enough information where they can represent themselves as you and get into your account and, and drain it oftentimes before you even realize what, what has happened. That's horrifying. When I was doing the research, just looking at that and thinking of all of the stupid passwords I have out there, not that I'm trying to alert criminals, hopefully criminals aren't listening to this, but any one of us can be susceptible to this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and there are definitely tips. And, you know, as we go through here, uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity. We can we can provide some some tips on how consumers can can better protect themselves. But you can be just going about your normal course of, of life and and certainly um, get information stolen, uh, shoulder surfed. I mean, there, there's very basic ways to do this. And then there's very sophisticated ways that include, you know, high velocity scripts and, and botnets and things of that nature. But yeah, I think, you know, very important that uh, consumers stay vigilant and, and just be aware of the risks that are out there that, that they face. Yes, uh, I would agree with that. And I am very ready to hear your tips on how to prevent that. But we're going to talk about that a little later in the show. So I want to go back to pre-COVID and just talk about fraud trends in the digital age. How have fraud trends been affected by the rise of digital payments and financial technology? Even pre-pandemic, we had started to see a, a shift into payment trends that had a lot of people trending toward towards digital. When you look at fraud in particular, the industry did a nice job. You know, one of the more popular fraud techniques over the years has been simple card fraud. You know, let me skim your card and, and clone your card, you know, counterfeit. The industry has done a really good job over the last couple of years to, to release these chip cards. So chip cards have become more popular. The whole idea behind chip cards was to make counterfeiting very difficult. And so as we've shut down one avenue for the fraudsters, uh, one of their more popular techniques being counterfeit, as we kind of shut that down, they just have started to migrate to other areas. I always joke, you know, fraudsters aren't going to say, oh, shucks, let me go get a legitimate job. They're going to go and find, <laughs> you know, another avenue to, uh, to, to apply their, their techniques. So digital and remote commerce has really become a, a focal point of, of where they have uh, targeted their, their attacks. So there's still an increase, or, or di let's say that digital technologies maybe not have increased fraud, but created new avenues for fraud. Yeah, I mean, uh, often fraud professionals will think of fighting fraud as kind of a, a balloon effect, or or if you think about where you push down on one side of a balloon and the other side of the balloon kind of expands, it's very very similar, and uh, it's a good analogy for fraud management because you know as soon as we lock down one area, the fraudsters are going to uh, to, to migrate and try to find that that weakest link. So. One evolution that we've noticed, and, and the pandemic has certainly accelerated this, is the popularity of, of various payment apps. Um, you think of, of P2P, Venmo, Zelle, Cash App, you know, and, and they're very convenient ways to, to transfer money. But I think what often people forget is they were really designed for, you know, splitting a, a bill at the end of a meal or, you know, doing something very simple uh, to get, you know, money to your friend for their birthday or something to that effect. So, again, I emphasize friends and family. You know, you should really know who the recipient is that uh, that, that you intend to send the money to. You know, these payment apps, uh, there's very little recourse for a consumer if they actually, you know, send money to the wrong person. So we always recommend, you know, really know who, who you're sending to. Check that email address, you know, d double check that recipient because uh, once you hit send, I mean, this is a real time instantaneous money transfer. And uh, like I said, very, very little opportunity for you to, to recover that once it's gone. So these apps are very popular for fraudsters right now. And it's not only P2P. There was a very interesting story on CNBC just two days ago about the investment app Robinhood. There was a, a massive increase in the number of users 
And when you think, and there's all kinds of different theories as to, as to why the increase, but people went into lockdown. A lot of people got stimulus money and a lot of people were just playing around with that money. And they thought, hey, let me get into investing for the first time. So the great thing about apps like Robinhood is it, it helps promote financial inclusion and it gives everybody an opportunity to invest, you know, even, even the smallest players out there. But what they also have is a nice integration into social media. So a lot of these people who are using, for example, the Robinhood app have a tendency to be braggadocious and, and they like to brag about how much money they've made or, or I, hit a, I hit a big win today in, in, in the markets. And, and that's a great way to attract fraudsters. Uh, you know, it's almost like sharks in the water. So they've seen a, a rise in, in fraud attempts and, and attacks. And typically, again, these go back to where there's been credentials that have been hacked or stolen. And, you know, they will use those to then get into these brokerage accounts and access the funds that way. So it's not just P2P, which is some of the most simple, you know, hey, I'm transferring money type of activities. It, it can be uh, investments. It can be loyalty points. Uh, those are or those are a store of value. Those are a currency. So anything that a fraudster can then monetize is really attractive for them. The COVID pandemic has opened up even more new avenues for fraud. And Eric says it's also accelerating some of the trends we were already seeing. One of the big things that we had seen was, you know, uh, brought to us by the lockdowns and the quarantines that occurred. So, you know, we had a, a good almost two months where a lot of physical businesses were just absolutely shuttered. I mean, at one point in time, and again, we went, we talked a little bit about it before, but we did see a trend even pre-pandemic into more and more remote commerce where the physical payment instrument is not present. So think about your card. You know, you're not actually dipping the card, but you're, you know, typing it in online. So we had seen a, a rise in that coming into the year. But as we got into the second quarter of 2020, while the quarantines were in full uh, full effect, we saw almost 90% of all transactions that were coming through our systems of, of a remote nature or, you know, where the physical card wasn't wasn't present. Whereas we saw a trend, it absolutely was accelerated through through the pandemic uh, here in, in 2020. And so, yeah, I, I would say, you know, remote commerce. The other big one that I would highlight, too, we saw an exponential increase in phishing attempts during the pandemic. So I'm sure everybody is somewhat familiar with phishing, but the, these are this is social engineering scams where, you know, they are presenting something that looks legitimate, but they're trying to get you to provide account information or personal information. And, you know, phishing is is pretty common through email, but there's also other ways you might hear of of vishing, which is voice a version of phishing, you know, of, of electronic uh, email phishing, smishing. A lot of this is through SMS. I can't tell you how many text messages I get from institutions in which I don't have an account with and are asking me to validate some type of information or, hey, your account has been blocked or closed and we need to talk to you. Please provide your social security number and your account number. I mean, you know, a legitimate institution is not going to ask you for that type of information. Right. I think I've been, uh, I've been, Someone's going to send me to jail, right? Because the IRS needs my information. Yeah. That's 
There is someone that continuously calls me and says that I have an IRS issue or something. They're, the one that I've gotten nonstop for the past three weeks is threatening to shut off my power at my house. I just get a, a robotic automated message that says your account's past due and your power is going to be shut off today at five o'clock. So if people don't know any better or don't know what to look for or don't know somebody that's had an experience that they can share, you can be tricked. It's still surprising to me as much focus as there is in the media and, uh, you know, through friends and family, word of mouth, as many people fall for these type of phishing uh, attempts as they do. It's still a material percentage of consumers that get duped in this in this manner. So I, I'd offer that up as, as another big trend that we've seen throughout the pandemic. Eric says the financial stresses of the pandemic are also driving an increase in so-called friendly fraud. This includes cases when someone uses a relative's credit card without permission or disputes a legitimate charge to get out of paying. But criminals have also exploited the struggling economy to prey on people looking for help. Particularly when the first round of stimulus funds came out, um, there was quite a few scams going around with the Small Business Administration. Um, and again, most of these were emails indi indicating that small businesses or consumers had money available to them. And then, you know, there would be an attachment or there would be a link to, you know, supposedly enroll. And what they didn't realize was that they were being duped into actually, you know, some kind of fraudulent uh, spoofed website, for example, and they're entering information directly into the criminal's uh, setup. So that's absolutely uh, been a problem as well. Uh, there was just a story the other day that I was reading, and just to show you how sophisticated some of these, uh, these situations can be, there was a situation in Spain where a group of criminals represented themselves as representatives of the government benefit office. They were able to embed advertisements into a very popular mobile banking application, indicating that there were some benefits available. And I think they had something to do with, with educational benefits. But the way that they lend credibility to this particular attack was the fact that they had already gotten personal information and were able to identify the number of kids in your household as well as their ages. So it almost looked like something legitimate that was being targeted to you by the government because of how many kids you had in your house or, or the age of, of your children. And a lot of people fell victim to this particular scam. And when they would provide the information back through the link to register, the criminals would harvest the account information. And then they were using that to enroll in, uh, in other payment apps. So, you know, fraudulently using the credentials uh, that the consumer had provided. So, so yeah, it's unfortunate, but um, these type of scenarios really give the criminals an opportunity to evolve their tactics and, and make them very specific to current events. There, there's nothing better than a, a crisis to, uh, for a criminal because people are already a little on edge, maybe their guards down, and uh, gives them you know, an easier way to go and, and get some people to respond to these type of attempts. With bad actors taking advantage of the pandemic, it's even more important to stay on guard against fraud. But when you hear about the phishing schemes people fall for, it's easy to think, that could never happen to me. And that's where the research on fraud takes a surprising turn. It turns out some of the most tech-savvy people among us are actually more likely to get duped. We work with a, a research, an industry research firm, uh, Javelin Strategy and Research, and we just 
we just commissioned them to do some research and uh, publish a white paper on that very topic. It's just, you know, how, how do tech savvy people, as we say, you know, continue to fall victim to this fraud. And, and you, you touched upon a couple of very important points. I mean, these people are often much more digitally connected. So they tend to also overshare, as I call it, on social media. They like to tell everybody about what's going on in their life and every friend and, and preference. Every and all, little all. medical detail. We all have that friend. <laughs> yeah, that is that is pretty surprising. Some of that is the TMI category. I, I 100% agree. But but yeah, you know, the, the, these tech savvy people, you know, very well connected. They tend to overshare, want, you know, want a lot of people to know what they're doing. They're also they're often the early adopters of the technology as well. And when you think about how quickly some of these technologies come to market, there are often still flaws and, and vulnerabilities that, that may be inherent with, within the code. And these fraudsters are very adept at, at finding those and exploiting those. So, you know, the attitude often of some of these tech savvy people, I think by default, they just assume safety, uh, you know, kind of a false sense of security in, in a way. And and uh, at least through the research, uh, some of the attitudes that were very prevalent around this particular segment of society was that, yeah, w we assume that these digital rails and these digital payments are, are safe until we're told otherwise, or we actually experience something to, to the contrary. Uh, so I think all of those pretty well influence um, some of what drives some of the more tech savvy early adopters to be popular targets uh, of, of fraudsters. Can you give me an example of how a tech-savvy person might become victim to fraud? Maybe a case study or something that, you know, maybe someone that you know or... I mean, I can share some of mine, although I'm not tech savvy. <laughs> well, you know, a couple of... Th yeah, a couple of things come, come to mind. I mean, one that I would say, you know, tech-savvy... It's easy to be duped. There was a public service announcement recently from the FBI that just reminded people to really take a hard look at, at the apps that you're downloading. Now, the, the, the basic thing is just make sure it's a verified, trusted app, you know, when you're downloading these things. But there, there are schemes and scams out there where there's what we call Trojans that have been created. And you can download one of these malicious apps and it basically creates a fake version of the login page for the financial institution, which will then allow the criminals to, to harvest whatever they're looking for, your account numbers, your personal information. So I think that's a very simple use case example of, you know, if you're not really paying attention to what you're doing, you could think you're downloading the latest and greatest payments app, but, you know, you're really downloading a, a spoofed version of it or or a malicious version of, of a similar app. So what happens next when someone's personal information is stolen or compromised? Yeah, you know, once someone's personal information is stolen, there's several tactics that, that criminals can use. And, and really account takeover is probably the most, most concerning and, and some of the biggest risk. Once these type of activities happen and they're in your account, Typically, a fraudster is then going to change information. They're going to change the physical address. They're going to change the email address. And then often, once that's done, they will go in and request a new card. Or, you know, they might uh, go in and, and change all of your settings and preferences around notifications. So that as they start doing activity, your typical fraud alert text message, for example, is not going to come to you. It's going to come to the phone number that they've changed and now go into a fraudster. So it could take you even longer to actually identify what the situation is. And there's there's little recourse 
correct? I mean, can you get your money back? It depends on, I guess it depends on your financial institution. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, credit and debit is still, from a consumer perspective, you have protection. I mean, there there's regulation E, there's regulation Z, and, you know, don't expect that the common consumer understands those regulations in particular. But basically what they mean is you as a consumer are protected against out-of-pocket loss. Now, you know, on a debit card, yeah, there might be some more inconvenience because now money's actually out of your account and you're waiting for money to be returned as opposed to credit where, you know, you haven't paid anything per se. You know, it's a, it's a future payment. So a lot of people see that as less risk or less hassle. But, um, but you as a consumer are still protected. So in credit and debit card payments, um, you should feel pretty confident that you're not going to be out tons of money if you're victimized, you know, you'll, you'll have recovery. Unlike what we talked about before with like P2P apps or loyalty points, for example, those, those don't typically have the same protection. So to your point, Aaron, not an easy, straightforward path. And, and you're pretty much just hoping for somebody's goodwill to get, get your points back or get your money back in a lot of cases. What a pain in the neck. But what about those new high-tech weapons that defend against fraud? Are financial institutions doing enough to protect us? I see them taking it very seriously. You know, a lot of eyes have been opened, you know, this year, particularly with the pandemic and the shift to digital and and things that we're we're talking about. So, yeah, you know, there's still opportunity, though, certainly. You know, I, I would highlight a couple of areas that I see a lot of focus on right now. You know, one being tokenization. Particularly if you're a if you're an issuer of card payments, um, there are ways now that you can basically render a breach or a hack of the data useless. Uh, when we talk about tokenization, it's a process by which there's no sensitive data that's actually passed in the clear. Everything is encrypted. So that really helps with these data breaches that we're seeing. Because again, if it's encrypted and even a fraudster was to intercept the information, there's nothing they can really do with it. Uh, So tokenization, there's certainly a big march towards that. Stronger authentication standards. It's still surprising how many people don't understand the benefits. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. It could be cost. It could be convenience. Because as much as you want to fight fraud as a financial institution, you don't want to make it overly difficult to do business with you. So you hear a lot about friction. We don't want to create friction in the experience, the enrollment experience, the customer service experience. And so people sometimes overlook things like multi-factor authentication. These can take a couple of different forms. One-time use passcodes is probably one of the more simple and straightforward examples. Um, getting a, a one-time code sent to you for access to your Google accounts or something to that effect. So that's a form of multi-factor authentication. Biometrics, whether it's the the old thumbprint uh, on your phone, facial recognition. I mean, these are all things that can be integrated and incorporated into your support processes so that when, you know, for example, somebody's calling in and you might be a little suspicious of who this person is, kick them off a one-time passcode. And they should, if it's a legitimate consumer, have that phone in their possession, get it quickly, give you the code, and you can move on with the interaction. But multi-factor authentication, even in this day and age in 2020, uh, there's still a lot of opportunity there, I I would definitely call out. And then I would just say cardholder education would be the final point. 
as an institution, I think you owe it to the consumer and your customer to really make sure they understand the risks that are out there. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time even at FIS just working with some of our financial institution partners to put together consumer education programs, things around how to be more cognizant of phishing attacks. How do you practice strong cyber hygiene, for example, and, and protect yourself that way? So I think the more you can get in front of that. Not only do you do a, a great service to the consumer, but reputationally, you can really solidify your brand as a safe and secure provider to the industry. Well, here's some cardholder education that someone may be very interested, that's someone being me and hopefully all of our listeners, is I love this term password hygiene or cyber hygiene. It's a new one for me, and I'll probably be putting it in my everyday lexicon from here on in. But I'm curious, how do we manage all the passwords? What advice can you give us to store our passwords or to remember our passwords while using safe passwords? We will often recommend, because I know how difficult it is to come up with passwords, and, and, you know, password best practice would indicate that you should use, you know, a combination of lowercase and uppercase, special characters, numbers, and that gets very complicated and hard to remember. So often we will say, hey, pick something that, that you know. You know, if you want to pick your favorite football team in the last year that they won the Super Bowl, you know, come up with a combination, you know, take all the vowels out, for example. You know, I've seen people do that with names. So there's, there's various tips that can kind of help you remember if you take something you know, and then, for example, remove vowels or, or add some, some hashes or, or some, some numbers as you go through. We talked before about the wealth of information that's available on the dark web, and passwords are very popular to be bought and stolen. So don't reuse the password as much as possible. You would hate to uh, you know, get it breached on one site and then be able to get into you know, 10, 20 other sites with the same thing. And let's do one more cardholder education fact here. What are some clues as to whether an email or a link is fraudulent? To me, it, it's goofy stuff, right? I mean, look if there's a weird misspelling in, in the in the email address. I mean, it sound these things sound so simple, but you know, when you when you see some of these phishing emails, they'll spell things wrong, or they'll they'll throw in a, a period where there shouldn't be, or you know, the actual body of the message itself will just sound a little off. I would just say, you know, to keep keep vigilant, stay alert, stay aware, and be skeptical of things. Well, Eric, you have given us so much to think about. But just in, in closing here, we've covered a lot about how criminals can exploit technology for fraud and how we can also use it to protect ourselves. Is technology making us more or less safe from fraudsters? I would say both, to be honest. I don't mean to hedge, but I think it's such a powerful tool, technology, that you know there's always going to be risks, but there's going to hopefully be a lot more on the reward side. I really believe that if we're going to continue the level of innovation that we need and, and also, most importantly, promote financial inclusion for everyone – we're going to have to effectively be able to leverage and lean on technology. And yeah, it could be scary. And, and there's a lot of risks and threats out there. But it's also very powerful for, for the good guys to, to, to leverage, particularly when configured and, and used the right way. Eric Kraus is Vice President of Fraud, Risk and Compliance Solutions at FIS. That's it for today's show. Thanks for joining us for the season one finale of Financial Futures. 
a production of Lower Street Media in collaboration with FIS. This season has been produced and edited by Isabel Pollard and Joel Wolfram. Alex Bennett is our audio editor and sound designer, and I'm your host, Erin Dangler. Stay tuned. Season two is coming soon. <laughs>